morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is John Connolly, whose new novel, The Land of Lost Things, hits U.S. bookstores on September 19th. I'll be interviewing John on stage at this year's Bookmarks Festival in Winston-Salem on September 23rd. John, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. So this and you novel... don't dial your hair like your actor's studio equivalent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You're all natural. <laughs> this novel is a sequel to your 2006 novel, The Book of Lost Things. Uh, what made you want to return to that world that you created in that book? Um, I never thought I would write a sequel to it. And it's it's a kind of sequel in that it it it, it returns to that universe, I suppose. The first book was very personal to me. My now wife had moved over from South Africa with her two young children. One was about to start secondary school and one was starting primary school. And I, I suddenly had kids in the house again and it made me reflect on my own childhood, which was, a, I, I was an unhappy child in a happy childhood. It's probably the best way of putting it. And um, and so I reflected a lot on that in, in, in the Book of Lost Things. I, I went back over those years. Um, and then I was during the lockdown, I took on the task of trying to adapt The Book of Lost Things for a film script. And we only found out that you couldn't film it. That was the only thing I discovered from trying to write a script. <laughs> um, so, so there wasn't much use. Um, and I suppose I had to take the book apart. And I realized I'd come to a slightly different point in my life in that I'm at that middle-aged stage where I spend a lot of time in a state of low-level worry. Um, and not necessarily necessarily about myself I have uh, my mother is 90 uh, is still living independently but um, has her own mind and um, and I, every time she doesn't answer the phone I have that awful middle-aged fear that something awful has happened both my children live away from home one is in South Africa and one is in Paris um, and I realize I have my phone beside my bed when I when I go to sleep just in case anything happens mm-hmm. and it's a stage we reach where you're the responsible adult you reach where you're worrying about parents and you're worrying about children. And the next stage in life is just, I hope to have people worrying about you. Um, I'm not sure which resource that they are worrying about you and that they really couldn't care less what happened to you. And there are times when either as a parent or as a, as a, as a son or daughter, where you'll feel close to breaking, where the, the burden of worry just gets to you sometimes. And sometimes it can be a little thing that does it. Sometimes it can be a very big thing. I think as a parent, most of us will have had the experience of at some point being outside of the hospital room or an operating theater for one of our children, you know, where just something awful happens. And um, and that's what happens with series in the in the in the book in the land of lost things. She is a single mother, her daughter is injured in a car accident, and she's at that stage where every day she's making this pilgrimage to her child's hospital bed. And she just begins to fracture under the strain of it. It just becomes debilitating. And she has an awful dark night, which I think people sometimes have, which is that you think if if this was a dog, we would have put them out of their misery. 
we would not let them suffer like this. Um, and she is consumed by guilt. And she retreats into a land, I think, that has a reality, that has an independent reality. It's not just made up. It is a psychological landscape, but it's also a physical one. And it responds to her presence, to her fears, to her concerns, but also to her childhood. She brings with her a lot. I believe that people, unhappy people, tend to be disconnected from their childhood and reluctant to return to their past. And she brings her past into this land with her. And that includes the folklore and folk stories that her father told her as a child. Her father was an amateur folklorist. And all of those things affected. And she begins to come to terms, I think, with, with her situation and the choices that she has to make. How do you balance when you're when you're writing a book that's that's in a world uh, or at least connected to a world that you've written about in a previous book? How do you balance the desires of someone who's read that first book and is coming back for more with the reader who who hasn't read the first book and is just encountering um, the book of lost things on its own? Well, it was reason enough in this case, because I think at the end of the book of lost things, pretty much everybody's dead. So, you know, <laughs> we don't really have to catch up with too many characters. Um, which is what I say it is. It is a sequel only in a, in a sense. Yeah. I think we're trying to return to the mood of the book rather than necessarily to replicate. Or, you know, a lazy sequel replicates everything that was in the first and just gives you a, a version of the same thing all over again. It's a little bit harder to, to recreate a mood, I think. But also I was aware of something that I hadn't really thought of when I wrote the first book. When I wrote the first book, I was thought of it, it's a book for adults. It's mm. a book that when we reach the end of it, it's very much about remembered pain and grief. We realize we're being told this story by an adult reaching the end of his life and reflecting on his childhood. Um, what I hadn't realized, but what I probably should have, was that adolescents, particularly young adults who read it, would read it with much more immediacy, especially if they were going through the loss of a parent or the disintegration of a marriage. For them, it would not be remembered. It would not be, you know, we're not talking about regret, which is a very adult emotion. They, they were feeling everything immediately. And so it became a book that two different constituencies read in two completely different ways, um, which was lovely. And so when I came to this book, I was more aware, I think, that, that two different constituencies might be reading it. And so I was very conscious of not talking down to one and not talking up to the other that the tone had to suit and match both. Um, so that was the only real challenge. But actually, you know, I'd be lying if I said it was a difficult book to write. A bit <laughs> like Book of Lost Things itself, it tapped into something so atavistic. These fairy tales and folklore, they're so embedded in us. They're embedded in some very old, deep part of us that when you tap into them, stuff just flows out. It, it's, it's like hardwiring yourself into your subconscious. It's it's a very odd experience, and and I've only had that experience with writing those two books. You talk about the the power of fairy tales, and we find out really early on in the narrative about the power that a book has in Phoebe's life. Um, this particular book of fairy stories. Tell us a little bit about the power that books have had in your life. Well. I can remember the first book I ever read on Aided. It was an Enid Blyton. Enid Blyton was probably much bigger in Ireland and England than she was in the United States. She oh, was yeah. a huge, significant writer. Um, and I can remember shortly after learning to read in elementary school, trying to tackle a book by, by myself and, and phonetically reading the words, you know, trying to break down large words into smaller constituent parts. 
Um, and in Ireland, we don't use the word cupboard, that English word cupboard or closet. Yeah. We call things a press. So I have never see, heard the word, seen the word cupboard used, you know? And so for my first, I think, 10 years of my life, I thought it was pronounced cupped board. My yeah. mother thought she was little Lord Fauntleroy, I think. Mommy, is there something in the cupboard I could get? <laughs> um, and so, but from the moment I began, there are people who, I don't want to sound like one of these awful children who comes out of the womb ballet dancing, you know? I always knew she was going to be a dancer. Um, but there are people who hear music and their instinct is to learn how to play an instrument. It becomes their way of interpreting the world. There are people who look at a painting and want to paint. They pick up crayolas or they pick up paints and they begin painting. And for me, just as soon as I began reading stories, I wanted to tell stories. I, I loved doing it. Um, and so I was a re re reading and writing kind of went hand in hand with me right from the beginning. Um, and so, but most of my reading wasn't, you know, now I'm, if I'm known for anything, I probably am, I'm better known as a mystery writer. Um, but most of my reading when I was younger was actually supernatural stories. Old English ghost stories, M.R. James uh, in particular for me was, was a huge influence on me. Um, and I think all of those things have fed into what I write. It's why the Parker books, my mystery novels, they have an element of the supernatural to them, which which was always, I think, and is still felt in some constituencies in the mystery community to be to be drawing outside the lines a little bit, and, <laughs> and not in a good way. Um, you know that, that actually mystery fiction really views the supernatural as the antithesis of everything that it stands for. But for me, coming out of a, an Irish Catholic background, fascinated by the supernatural, by folklore, it seemed quite natural to me to blend those two elements together, and it feeds into the Book of Lost Things and the Land of Lost Things too. Those that fascination with folk stories, with the supernatural, they're all in there. Yeah. And you're right. I love the fact that early on in the book, you encounter this um, a carving of a green man. I've always been a big fan of the green man sort of imagery. And you call it a sign of a testament to beliefs older than Christianity. Mm. Can, can you talk a little bit about how the, the ancient beliefs of, of Britain shape those, that folklore and also shape your own writing? Well, like you, I, I find the Green Man interesting. It was it's a sign of pragmatism in the early Christian church, I think, where they, they came along to these communities and said, you know, and talked to them about, you know, God and Christ. And people thought, hey, this guy, he sounds lovely. He sounds like for him and his two friends sound absolutely perfect. And we're quite happy to believe in them. And I'm sure the old gods don't exist. But just in case yeah. they do exist, maybe we could throw them a bone. And so what's really interesting about the Green Man is if you go and look at old churches, they'll be... The, the green man will be in the eaves. Yeah. He will have been carved into the stonework. He will be, he will have been painted by the workers because even though they accepted Christianity, they weren't entirely sure that there weren't other gods too. And that maybe, maybe, you know, there was no point in offending people for the sake of offending them. And, and you know, if God was all powerful, he was going to understand throwing somebody else a bone. I think that was their belief system. Um, and so I find that fascinating. And, and it's some of that feeds in, in, into Ireland too, where we have this, this fascination with, with a, a world that runs parallel to ours, a world that runs under ours. Um, there was a story, uh, one of my favorite stories in an Irish newspaper. Um, some years ago, we were building a new highway with European money, God bless the European Union. <laughs> and, and a story appeared that the, that the highway had been redirected to avoid a ferry mound. Now, in 
I, in Ireland, my mother would say, you know, she grew up in Kerry and I spent my summers down there. People were very careful about what they called ferrymans. Yeah. They were old. They were often old prehistoric constructions that had become overgrown with greenery. But you generally left them alone and you found cattle didn't graze there. People were quite careful around them. Um, and the, the head guy in charge of the motorway project was most aggrieved at the suggestion that a multi-billion you know, euro, pound highway would be redirected about a ferryman. And he said, actually, you know, it was always meant to go around the ferryman, which I thought was just, you know, <laughs> was quite brilliant, you know. Yeah, we're, we're not idiots here. We're not going to go looking for trouble. Um, so there is still a consistency. And it's something that is very European, I think. You know, it's, if you go to Iceland, for example, there's just this fascination with, with trolls and elves. And, and, you know, people kind of accept that they... Perhaps they don't have an objective reality, but they have a reality in the way that people live and approach their lives. And, and in some ways, I think it's wonderful. It's incredibly enriching. Yeah. You know, I always feel a bit sorry for people who don't have religion. I think religion is quite fascinating. You know, I think it's a lovely thing to have in your life. It makes it more interesting, if nothing else. <laughs> I, I have a special fondness. I mean, I, I do this in my own work a lot, too, with of sort of texts within texts. Um, you know, I include letters and documents and things like that. And you yeah. do that in this book. You have stories within the story, sometimes the story that series is telling, sometimes the story that, that someone else is telling. Can you talk about about the creation of those of those texts within text and 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 their relationship to to the larger book? A bit like you, I, I've incorporated them into my crime novels as well. I was a big fan of Dickens. Um, I think Bleak House is probably my fam favorite novel. But you know, even going back to the Pickwick Papers, the Pickwick Papers uses those texts within text. Somebody tells a story, and somebody else picks up on it, and so you have these layers built into the story. Um, and I distrust occasionally a, an Irish writer will crop up and announce that he doesn't want to be called a storyteller. It's usually a he, to be perfectly honest, uh, that he's uncomfortable with that and he's something more than that. And I always think we're creatures of narrative. We're creatures who construct our days around stories. The first thing I say when you meet somebody is, well, what have you been doing? Yeah. You know, and, we, and we're, we're all instinctively very good at, at editing. You know, we don't say, well, like, I got up this morning and I boiled an egg and it took two yeah. minutes because the guy's got to wander off and they're going to, you know, <laughs> we leave out the dull stuff and we accentuate the interest. It's a very natural way, I think, of dealing with the world. And so when I, when I with, a, with a book like the, the Book of Lost Things and The Land of Lost Things, Part of the theme of the book is losing yourself in books and stories, physically losing yourself in books and stories, but also metaphorically doing it. And so if you create these layers, you kind of have this fog of confusion in the reader. There's, it's a story being told by a writer. Within this, there's a book. Within that book, there are people telling stories. And those people, the characters within the book, they're telling stories to each other about other characters. And the reader is kind of just, you're wandering through this maze of narrative. Um, and I just love that. I love that sense. I love that sense of getting lost in a book. And, and so it was something that I wanted to explore, lost in narrative, in these lovely kind of almost like stone-like layers of narrative that you dig down, um, that you dig down through. And, and they, I, for me, they enrich the story. Yeah, yeah. So we talked a little bit about, about folklore, about ancient religions and, the, and these sort of ancient ideas from, from the past in Britain. But your chapter titles also sort of delve into the past and use this kind of forgotten, or at least for most readers, I imagine, forgotten vocabulary. 
Um, tell us a little bit about, about creating those titles and why you wanted to sort of introduce those lost words into the text. It's, it's a book that's in love with stories and language. Um, and I am one of those people who, it's a poor book that I don't come out of not having learned a new word. You know, I don't want to have simple narratives. I remember a friend of mine once reviewing a, a John Banville book while John Banville was in the studio with him. And my friend Mark got quite aggrieved that he had to keep reaching for a dictionary. He said, I don't want to read a novel with a dictionary beside me. And John, John Banville looked aghast and he said, but I thought everybody read books with dictionaries beside <laughs> them. <laughs> and I didn't want to go quite that far, but I'm in love with, with old, interesting words. And I... I, my primary degree was in English language and literature. So one of the things I had to do was Old English. I had to learn Old English, I had to deconstruct the seafarer and the wanderer and the Battle of Malden, which was all terribly difficult. But some of these words are just so beautiful. There's yeah. a lovely, the word that, the, the word spider is quite a recent word. You know, the old Anglo-Saxon word was atterco, which means poison head. And I love that. And there's a lovely, there's another word in there. It's an Anglo-Saxon word, it means shelter feather. And it's the when somebody puts a consoling arm around you when you're in trouble. And I loved those words. And it was, I think I, I wanted to communicate to people just this richness of language, this beauty of language. Um, and so there was a pleasure in searching out. I, I, I was when I knew that I would be doing the book, I had a notebook and I would, if I found interesting words or texts, I would I would put them into it and, and hope that I would be able to find one of them that would suit one of the themes of the books because they're they're the building blocks. You can't be a you can't be a builder and not be interested in bricks. You know, these are the essential components of what we do. So why wouldn't you use them in their richest and most varied sense? I often think that we underestimate, sometimes publishers underestimate the intelligence and curiosity of readers. You know, and I think actually, you know, dumb people don't read books. Dumb people are busy doing other things. They're messing around with other stuff. The mere fact that somebody picks up a book usually means that they're reasonably engaged and intelligent. And therefore, you shouldn't underestimate that intelligence. You should be prepared to use it and to challenge it within reason. So why wouldn't I? You know, as I said to you, I, if, I, if I finished a book and thought there is no word in that book that I didn't already know, I feel like I've taken a step backwards in a way. <laughs> when when series um, is first meeting and getting to know the woodsman she has this moment where she observes him cleaning and filling his pipe and she reflects on the idea of ritual um you know we've we've sort of touched on religion a little bit without touching yeah on on ritual can, can you reflect a little bit on ritual both in your life and also in this novel the, the place that it holds it's the ritual in in the land of lost things is is almost the healthier flip side of ritual in, in the Book of Lost Things. When I was young, uh, a teenager, I suffered very badly from OCD. I mean, debilitating, crippling OCD. I was the first person in my family to be taken to a psychiatrist. My mother was so proud. <laughs> um, and, and so in the, book, in the Book of Lost Things, David, I gave David my OCD. Um, and actually, OCD has been very useful to me as a writer, curiously. Um, because I don't teach creative writing, but occasionally I'll give 10 minutes to people about writing. And one of the things I say to them is that the, the very difficult thing about being a writer is that you, when you write the first line of something and you will know this, psychologically committing to writing the last line. <laughs> yeah. um, because somewhere between those two stages, 
every book you'll have a crippling moment of doubt. Uh, for me, at 20, every book I've written, I've wanted to throw it away after about 20,000 words. That never goes away. And yet at the same time, I have nothing unfinished in a drawer. I've never left a story unfinished. I have no unfinished novels. Um, and part of that is that thing of, that I, I found a way to use what had been very debilitating in adolescence in a kind of positive way as an adult. I got to twist that OCD into something. And yet at the same time, for a lot of us, there is a comfort in, in routines, yeah. in these little things that we do to get us through the day. Um, you don't want to be constantly in a state of uncertainty and newness. There is, I, I was actually talking recently about nostalgia. I do a radio show in Ireland devoted to, to music from the 70s and 80s. And I kind of view it as a kind of element of public service because I, I spent, when I was doing a book on, on film, I was dealing with the, the University of Southampton in England has a, has a department devoted to nostalgia, to the study of nostalgia, which I think must be the best job ever. You know, can I have that when I retire, please? You know, can I just watch old movies? And they say, really interesting, you know, that nostalgia, people who are, they, they say you should take time out maybe three times a week for half an hour to listen to an album that you loved during your adolescence or young adulthood or to watch a TV show that gave you comfort uh, or to read a book from that time. Um, because these are, they're like a conduit from the past to the present. They're a conduit from a time of contentment to now. And they're like pittance in the rock face of our, of our experience. And I sometimes think routine and ritual in our life is like that. There are these little things that we can come back to that we rely on that we know work for us. Um, and for me, OCD was a very debilitating version of that because you're, you're trying to give yourself the illusion of control over the world. Yeah. You know, and I think that's why adolescents in particular tend to suffer from it because suddenly you realize you have this sense that you're going to be thrust into this very difficult world that you really don't know how to handle. You look at people like, how do your parents pay bills and sort out the electricity and you know pay that and all of these things? And how do you negotiate the complexities of adult relationships and in, in a world that really doesn't have any interest in you? You know, that, that doesn't have any interest in your happiness or unhappiness, that is just going to go along all the way. And, and so OCD gives you an illusion of control. And I think there is a version of that in ritual as well. There is a sense of, of comfort and consolation in it. And I think if if it gives whatever gives you comfort and consolation, be, you know, within reason, I mean, you know, obviously you don't want to be touching farm animals inappropriately or whatever that might be. That's, that's probably not going to be good. But in general, I see nothing wrong with these little routines that we have in life. And it's very hard to find somebody who doesn't have them and doesn't take pleasure in them. Even if it's just me or my wife, you know, she comes down in the morning when there's nobody else up. She has a ritual for making her cup of tea. You know, and it's part of her day. It, you know, it's it's it brewing for so long, it's covered, and then she'll she'll open a book, and the music will be playing, and she the dogs will be around her, and these are the things that give her comfort. This is her way of easing into the day, and you know, it's the very small things that keep us going. Yeah. You know, we're not all going to be lottery winners or buying yachts. It's those <laughs> little moments that we steal during the day that are ours that we know are coming up. They're the things that keep us sane. Um, we we learned a little bit about Siri's father. This this really struck me. Her I think her mother says this. He was a most infuriating man, and I loved him with all my heart. Which I, I love that contradiction. And then I love this later sentence. You say, "Thus can a man become a liar while holding himself honest." Can you talk a little bit about the role of paradox in this novel? <laughs> cool. These are fascinating questions. Um, <laughs> Well, it's not even it's so much in the novel as as in life. You yeah. know, 
mean, Irish Catholics, are, we're very good at holding, you know, completely contradictory things in our head. It's very hard to be a complete rationalist and be a Catholic. You know, you have to hold two, two conflicting ideas in your head about reality and unreality. And the book is fascinated by the complexity of human beings. I think by human beings with all their nuance and all of their imperfections. Um, you know, my own father, um, he, he came from a generation that had had all of the optimism knocked out of it. You know, he grew up in, he was born in the late 1920s um, and had never known an Ireland that had prosperity. You know, it was a country that had always been poor, that that, that had always had political difficulties and and died before we found, briefly found wealth at the end of the 1990s and then had it all spent about a decade later. Um, and, you know, my father, when I said I wanted to be a writer, he, I remember him saying to me that, you know, people like us don't become writers. We don't become actors. We work for the council. That's what we do. We work for the city. You know, you find a job from which you can't be fired, even if you set the place on fire, you know, that they you're unionized. So the only thing they can do is put you somewhere where there are no matches. <laughs> um, um, and yet, you know, for all the obstacles, I think my father put in my way when I wanted to do things that didn't conform to his idea of things, I, I I, I loved him dearly. And, and one of my deepest regrets is that we never really got to know each other in that I was just coming out of that stage of, he died when I was in my very early 20s, when whatever animosity there is between you and your father is usually falling by the wayside. You know, that, you know, you're not angry with him anymore. You're starting to understand the way that he deals with the world. And I never really got to say that to him. And I think it's probably why in, in the books there are so many absent fathers. You know, Phoebe doesn't have a father in the book. He's, he's he has no interest in her. Uh, Siri's father is dead in the Parker novels. Parker's father is is dead before the books begin, and and all around him hover these variations on on father figures. And actually, in the in the land of, the land of lost things, for series they're often mother figures. You know, she keeps encountering versions of motherhood. Um, you know, she has her own mother at home, but she feels, I think, in some ways, a failure as a mother. And the book presents her with these versions. It splits people. It takes these complicated beings and finds facets of them and puts them into single individuals. And, and I found that curious. It's a really interesting question. I could probably write a thesis on it. <laughs> you write, um, no book was ever created in isolation. And literature was a long, ongoing conversation between stories. What stories do you see the land of lost things being in conversation with? I mean, uh, we talked about the fairy tales, but are there are there books that? Oh, yeah, I, one of the, the there are little odd little things in it. At one point, series looks at the books on her father because she's living in the house that her parents used to occupy, and it's filled with with parts of their lives. And on the shelf are, she mentions Titans of so there's, there's Milton Paradise Lost is on the shelf. Um, there's a, Livy's Histories of Rome. Um, there are art books on the shelf. And actually all of those books filter into the narrative. Every one of them has a place in the narrative. There is a mine in the book called Pandemonium, which is taken from Paradise Lost. Um, there is one of the artists, if you look up, you know, the the if you look up this artist on, on the internet, the first thing you see is, is a very famous painting of somebody stepping out of a painting, of putting a foot out of a painting. It's, it's a subject coming to life, which becomes part of the narrative. And so the book is, is constantly doing that without 
without tapping the reader on the shoulder and going, let me tell you, because Shiri's doesn't go, oh, is the pandemonium mine, is that from Paradise Lost? Yeah, yeah. There's none of that. The, it assumes a lot of knowledge on the part of the reader, but if you don't have it, that doesn't matter. There will be things that you pick up later. I mean, I wrote a series of books for kids some years ago about a child called Samuel Johnson, and I named his dog Boswell. Now, no <laughs> 10, no 10 to 12-year-old child is going to know that for most of his life, they realized Samuel Johnson had a bloke following around with a notebook going, oh, Dr. Johnson, that's very interesting. I'll write that down. I'll put it in a book about you later. But I love the idea that maybe at their, in their 20s or something, a kid would go, so that's where that came from. Yeah, it's yeah. like a time bomb joke that will go off much later. Yeah. And so the, the, the Land of Lost Things is full of those little references. That, so people would, if you're a reader, you'll pick up some of them. You won't pick up all of them, but yeah. you don't have yeah. to pick up all of them. It doesn't really matter. You know, so it is the book, the land, as with the Book of Lost Things, it's a product of, it's, a, it's affected by the books that Phoebe had read and by the books on her father's shelves. And that's true of all of us as readers. One of the themes of both books is the idea that you are shaped by the books that you read, that books are a kind of benign infection. And we're having some of the difficulties in Ireland that you are having with people trying to ban books, yeah. which we'd never, I mean, we had, to be fair, we had a whole censorship of publications office that took great delight for many years in trying to ban books. Usually anything with any bit of sex in it, you know, would be gone. But now we have people, very rightly, people trying to ban books and that discuss gender yeah. or sexuality. Um, and, you know, they're appalling people, but they understand something that the policemen who laugh alongside them don't, which is that books, the physical object of a book has a potency, you know, and they understand that appalling people though they are. They understand the potency lies not just in the ideas, but in how those ideas are contained and how they are communicated. The Internet's a big babble. It's a whole lot of voices shouting at one time. It's a distraction machine. A book isn't. And I think what's also really interesting is that Kids now, young adults who are reading, and I think look, I think book talk is, is 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 quite fascinating. But a lot of them, they aren't reading on screens. Screens are for communicating with their friends. Screens are for watching videos. When they want to read a book, they understand the immersive nature of a text, and they will pick up the physical object of a book. So even though there was a time about a decade ago when I mean Amazon was really on an upsurge, and the independent book were closing down and there were some writers a small rump of largely american writers who seemed to be delighting in the closure of bookstores delighting in the closure of libraries they became shills for ebooks um and i for a while like a lot of writers and a lot of people who love bookstores and libraries i was fearful for the future of them and i'm not anymore yeah i think i look at the next generation of kids coming up and think you understand it you understand it better than actually a lot of the previous generation do and so there's reason to be hopeful yeah, I've noticed if I'm in a if I'm talking to an audience of a, a wide variety of ages, and I say, you know, who reads their books on, on a physical book, and who reads an electronic book, the younger people in the audience are the ones who are more likely to be reading a physical book. Uh, so I, I agree with you. I think it gives me great hope, and we certainly have. Yeah, seen it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to see bookstores opening. Um, I, you know, this book is so full of. Uh, I don't want to say quotes because that sort of implies that these are things that sort of float on their own and don't connect to the rest of the book, but passages that really spoke aloud to me that I had to like underline and copy out. Um, and I just want to read one so we can talk about it a little bit. You write, for a novel to work, it had to cast a spell on a reader. It didn't have to convince them to believe in the impossible or cease to distinguish between falsehood and veracity. 
but it did require them to lower their defenses, to suspend themselves between realms, even for a time, to forget one world entirely, so engrossed did they become in the other. I mean, I, I feel like that should be on the, the wall of any room where there's a, a course being taught on how to write novels, you know. But but can you can you talk a little bit about just the the nuts and bolts of how do you go about casting a spell on readers? I don't know is the mm. answer. I don't know. I, I am not, um, as I said earlier, I, I've never been comfortable with with trying to teach creative writing. Yeah. Um, I, I Whatever I've learned, I've learned probably by osmosis in that I, I was a voracious reader as a child and I'm still a voracious reader now. And I'm constantly consuming books. And I think for most people, that's how you become a writer. You're, you're a reader first and you're a reader foremost. And writing is the thing you do when you're not reading. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so you can't, it, it's a very difficult thing to, to, to construct. Um, and when I was writing that quote, what I love about fiction is that at its best, it forces you to inhabit another person's consciousness. It forces you to see the world in a completely different way and you don't have to agree with it, but it, it all, it should alter your thinking, I think. And there are other things it does. I mean, there's, we all have those lovely moments in a, in a piece of fiction where you'll think, you know, I've always thought that, but I thought it was just me or I could never have phrased it in quite that way. And that's, that's lovely. Um, but that's a kind of confirmation bias in a way. It, it's much more interesting when, when a bookmaker can go, I, I never thought of that. You know, I've never looked at the world quite that way before. And you become altered by it. And you know, there are studies suggesting that they're looking at that, the nature of how does compassion tie in or and empathy tie in with readers of fiction? Does it make people more em empathic? Or is it just that people who are more empathic and are more compassionate and are more curious about human beings are more likely to pick up a work of fiction? Yeah. You know, and the, the truth, like most things, probably lies somewhere in between. Yeah. Um, but I recently, I, to do an interview recently, and, and I, I'm surprised what the word I use was empathy machine. Mm -hmm. I think that's what fiction can be at its best. It can make you understand other human beings differently. It's not just about understanding yourself. It's about understanding yourself in relation to all of these other people. And that's, again, crops up in the book that, you know, you're not... The, if you shift the narrative, that's why I love um, Tom Stockard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Mm -hmm. which takes two minor characters from Hamlet and actually puts them center stage. Because for Rosencrantz and Gilderson, they are center stage. Yeah. This isn't the story. Uh, this isn't the story of Hamlet. This is the story of Rosencrantz and Gilderstern. And there's just some odd prevaricating prince wandering around in the background who needs a <laughs> job. And once they can do that, they can get their money and go about doing something very different. And that idea that we are all the center of our own little universes. And eventually we can, and in these orbits, we shade into other people's. And, and those are the points that are, when, when life becomes interesting, when, you're, when, you're, when you've reached that point where your orbit and the orbit of another person, there's a kind of ellipse with them. And, and I, so I just found that it, I find it fascinating. And so you, for me, fiction is a way of just throwing out all of these ideas. Of people. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and sort of building on, on what you were just saying about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you write, there's something that is important to grasp in order to understand people and their motivations. In stories, as in life, there are no secondary characters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's more or less what you're just saying. But but 
Can you talk about how that idea guides you when you're creating a character who's only going to be on stage for a few pages or a few paragraphs, maybe a chapter or two? How does that you give them? That... You give them one moment in the book. You give them a line or a, a tiny motion, or you have in the Parker novels, Parker might reflect on something about them that suggests, you know, in the inner life, you don't have to give them a backstory that goes on for four pages if they're only going to be there for a paragraph, you know, but there is enough to suggest each time that, that these people have a life beyond the pages of the book. They're not just a cipher that you put in there. Um, And so, yeah, the Parker books in particular have been very conscious of doing that, of always suggesting that beyond the pages of the book, these people have a life and an existence and an agency and this is just their brief movement through a completely different narrative. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's a way of, it, it's a it's a way to approach writing. I think to to be aware of that because otherwise you end up kind of doing dummy's guide to writing. You know, he's a secondary character. You know, make sure you give him a nice hat, yeah. <laughs> whatever it might be. <laughs> uh, um, I've just been, yeah. But these are all, but then if you had a different writer here, they will give you a completely different set of answers. Mm-hmm. You know, all I know is that this is the way I know how to write. Um, and, I, and I'm and well aware that occasionally I will meet people, you know, there are a couple of, I'm not a planner. Mm-hmm. Never been able to plan. I can't play chess for exactly the same reason. Yeah. I'm not very good at thinking that far ahead. And so when I begin a book, I, I tend to know the opening of it. And I might know one or two things that are going to happen, but I, I won't have any conception of characters or or even a through line to the story. And, and I kind of discover them in the process of writing. You know, I, I figure them out in the way because, you know, action is what characters do and you need to get the characters first. And, and all good fiction starts with character. God, there are some English writers who get really aggrieved when I say that. They seem to take it very personally that I don't plan books. And it's as if I'm going around to the house and sneaking into them at night and unplanning their books, you know? <laughs> and then wake up in the morning and it's like somebody has unpicked the threads of a tapestry and left them all over the floor. They get really annoyed with that. So, But for some writers, it's impossible to write unless they have a plan. And for me, I couldn't write if I had a plan. I, I would, I'd have no interest in writing a book that I knew the beginning, middle and end of. Yeah. That would be really tedious. Yeah. I find that with with storytelling, I mean, I have a I have a young friend. He's about seven now, but he still likes for me to tell him a story once in a while. And he'll give me a topic. He'll give me, you know, tell me a story about an ogre or a troll or what. And I never have a clue where it's going to go or where it's going to end up when I start talking. And that's why I tell him the story is to find out how it's going to turn. Yeah, out. yeah, yeah. It, that's why. Yeah, it it is. You you're almost the first reader of your own narrative. Yeah. Yeah. When you're a writer, you know, part of it is discovering what's going to happen. That's part of it. I mean, that's what makes it very difficult as well, because you will occasionally hit a brick wall and think, oh, for God's sake, <laughs> no, no idea. But then, you know, you go for a walk or you go to see a movie or you go for dinner with the missus and you come back and, or you go to bed. And the next morning when you sit down, it has sorted itself out. The, yeah. the unconscious is a marvelous instrument. You know, you just need to leave it alone at times and, and it will sort out a lot of stuff for you, I think. So you've written in several genres. You've written, as you said, um, you know, sort of crime novels. You've written what I would call fantasy novels. You've written for young readers. But, you know, all of these kind of novels uh, still require an antagonist, right? Um, and can, can you talk a little bit about creating a great villain and what what uh, what you think are the, are the essential aspects of, you know, the bad guy? 
It's what the, I remember watching a sketch show, uh, Mitchell and Webb. There are two. Oh, I love them. Yeah. British comedians, and there's a very famous sketch they have. Yeah, there's a, but there's a sketch where they have two Nazis in a trench. Yes. And one are of we the baddies? You know, we were skull and crossbones, and you know, and, uh, and we wear these black uniforms, and everybody hates us. And he goes, Do you think we're the bad guys? Yeah. yeah. Um, and the great thing about very few people are actively, they're not actively setting out to be bad. Yeah. You know, most people are selfish or they're angry or they're jealous or they're fearful and it makes them do appalling things. But they don't actually believe that they're the villains of their own story. What's really fascinating about villainy, about badness, is that so many of us can justify it to ourselves. We can be very pragmatic about it and say, we're not bad people. We're just being forced to do these things along the way. Um, and so for me, that's always been part of it, that when you're creating these characters, they're not as far as they're concerned, they're just doing what they have to do. And, and they're often as driven. You know, I think I've given every sin I've ever committed to somebody in a book, you know? And, and in some ways we, Milton, we were talking about Milton earlier, Milton, you know, we, he made the great discovery that, you know, the bad people are somehow often more interesting than the good ones. Because one of the things about badness is that it often has, it's, they're often doing things, you know? Bad people, they act, they're, they're doing, and, and, and goodness can often be reactive in a way that we react to when a boss, and that's why we get undone so often. Um, Something decency gets undone because we're, we're, we're waiting for somebody to do something that we have to react to rather than being proactively good, I think. Um, and so for me, yeah, you know, and also that, you know, I gave Parker so many flaws and he was so tormented that the forces that he had to face had to be so much more dreadful than he was and so and also because i as i said i introduced from the beginning i was fascinated with the idea that yes you have human mundane evil but is there at the most extreme points of human behavior do we draw on a deeper well do we draw on an older or something pre-human um, and that was one of the questions the Parker novels asked, because that's one of the questions that I suppose Christianity asks and Catholicism asks. You know, if there is goodness and if there is an ideal of goodness in the universe, is there then also its opposite? And what form does that take in in human enterprise? And and crime novels have always been an interesting way to explore that. But even in the book of lost things and the land of lost things, the crooked man, you know, for all his appallingness. It's just a creature who's in love with stories, you know, and the more dreadful the story, the more he knows it's going to impact upon the reader. Yeah. There's a little bit of the writer in him, you know, you want people to react, you want people to get a shiver up their spine, you want them to be horrified, you want them to be appalled, you want them to be moved, and you'll manipulate them any way you can to do it. You know, no tool is beneath you. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully it'll give us some insight into you and into your writing. So here we go. What word do you love to work into your writing? <laughs> uh, hope. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Myriad. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to write? Probably upstairs in my office at home with my dog sleeping beside me. Where could you never write? In a car, because I get profoundly car sick. 
To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Splitting infinitives. Um, we sort of touched on this earlier. What was the first book you remember reading? Oh, it was a Secret Seven mystery by yeah, Andy yeah. Um, What are you reading now? Uh, I'm reading The Human Factor by Graham Greene, which I'd never got around to. I quite like spy narratives. What book would you like to have written? You know, there isn't any one of them because it would be worse if I wrote it. The mm. books I love, I love because <laughs> someone else has written them. Yeah. All the good ones have been taken. Yeah. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? I've long entertained a, the idea of writing a big historical epic and I have a title for it and about two piles of research books. And I just never... I think I've left it so long that I that I'm now frightened of it. So that, a big historical epic. Yeah. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I paid cash for this. <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer's <laughs> Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been John Connolly, whose novel The Land of Lost Things will be available September 19th, wherever books are sold, and who will be joining us on stage at the Bookmarks Festival in Winston-Salem on September 23rd. John, thanks for joining us. Charlie, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. On our next episode, I'll be talking with another one of this year's Bookmarks Festival authors, Megan Miranda, about her novel, The Only Survivors. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Mm -hmm.